Well, I will say to you this morning that we are not tormenting you intentionally. As you have recognized by now, the heat is not working. It's just another part of the conspiracy, right, to shut churches down on Christmas. Don't tell anyone I said that. I was reading Kevin Miller had written uh, a little take on uh, when he was working in the publishing industry, and he says that all of the staff was gathered together for a Christmas banquet, and they were in a great room. There was about 150 people, and they were sitting around tables, much like ours here at the church, that will hold six or eight people around for their meal. And right as the event was beginning, the CEO came in, last minute coming in, and there weren't many seats available. And he came to Kevin's table, and there was a seat there, and he asked the lady sitting next to the empty chair, is anyone sitting there? Do you mind if I sit there? And she sort of was waiting for someone else, and she kind of scowled at him and said, no, this seat is taken. And he said, okay, thank you, and walked off. And as he got out of earshot, the table erupted in laughter because this lady had been there only two weeks. She didn't know who the CEO was, didn't know what he looked like. But she'd sent a clear message that there was no room for him at the table. And in much the same way, in much the same way, this is what happens when God enters the world He created. There's so many, so many who do not recognize the Messiah who do not recognize God, who has come to save, to rescue. Many don't even recognize that they need rescuing. They just simply say, sorry, there's no seat for you, it's taken. According to a recent Lifeway research study, 91% of Americans celebrate Christmas. That's pretty impressive, 91%. That includes even people who are not Christian by faith or choice. 72% believe Jesus was actually born. They believe it was a historical event that occurred 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. 80% believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of God the Father. But only 41% say that God's Son existed before being born in Bethlehem. Unsurprisingly, Religiously unaffiliated are the least likely to agree with any of the statements surrounding Jesus' birth and identity. 48% of the religiously unaffiliated believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Father. 33% say Jesus was really born in Bethlehem more than 2,000 years ago. And only 15% believe the Son of God existed before Jesus was born. Last week, Nathan introduced this second chapter of Hebrews and led us through the first half and encouraged us to pay attention to the real message about Christ and the Incarnation. That if we do not, we will likely drift further and further away from the truth and miss Christ and the Gospel altogether. This morning we focus on the second half of this chapter. And we're going to consider the Incarnation's importance and clear implications. Not all of them, but some important ones, as the writer has offered us. So I invite you to turn your attention to verse 10, here in the second chapter of Hebrews. And let's consider the Incarnation's importance. 
The writer is making a clear point to us. He says at the very outset, for, and this word is connecting us to what has gone before. He's connecting us to the argument that's presented in verses 5 through 9. That argument goes like this. No angel has ever heard these words which were spoken by the Father to the Son. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The exhortation that's present. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard. The Father did not subject the world to come to angels, but to men, as seen in Psalm 8. We do not presently see the inhabited world under man's control. What we do see, however, is the Son, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because during His time on earth, He suffered death for everyone. Now to explain this brief time of being lower than the angels, or the incarnation as we know it, in more detail, it was completely right. It was completely fitting and necessary for the Father to make the Son, who is the pioneer, the founder of man's salvation, perfect through various sufferings. This is the argument. And so... This writer begins by saying it was fitting, it was necessary, it's right for rescuing and reclaiming sinners that this all happen just as it did. I want to take you back at the risk of being somewhat redundant. You're here this morning on Christmas Day because you probably are well acquainted with the Scripture. You have a strong faith in the Lord, most likely. But let us remind ourselves this morning why the incarnation is so important. If we go back to Genesis, we know that God spoke everything that is into being with the Word. And then He pronounced that it was all good. All of it was good. He created creatures in His own image, the Scripture says, to rule over this creation that God had made. So He put them in charge. And He said, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. And I want you to maintain what I've created, lead all of this creation to worship me as a testimony of my glory and greatness. And he gave them a warning. He said, do not disobey me, because if you do, judgment will come. Sin cannot exist where God's holiness is. Sin must be judged, and it will be judged by death. Genesis 3 tells us exactly what happened, right? Adam and Eve failed. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They did not heed the warning. In fact, they embraced a lie. And the curse was delivered upon all creation. Death was delayed, even became gradual. Nevertheless, the clock began to tick. God gave common grace, a temporary stay, that He might redeem, that He might reclaim that which was lost, that which was broken. The Bible tells the story of how God is doing exactly that. From cover to cover, it's His narrative, it's His story of how He is restoring, how He is reclaiming all that belongs to Him, that He created good but has fallen into brokenness through sin. Israel's Egyptian bondage offers a graphic picture of the story. God freed Israel from Pharaoh's oppression to be his people. 
He made a covenant with them. And he added stipulations. In other words, he said, I have taken you out of Egypt. You're no longer enslaved to them because you are my people. And if you are my people, then I will be your God. And what that looks like, you see through these stipulations, through these behavioral expectations. We call it the law, but God said, this is who you are as my people. This is who you will be as we journey together. So he made a covenant with them. These instructions enabled them to know how to be God's people. God's holiness, His righteousness demands judgment. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says this, Therefore, since we have we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. A consuming fire. His holiness resulted in the devastating judgment of Aaron's two sons who were priests. You remember Nadab and Abihu, who the scripture says brought unauthorized fire before the Lord as an offering and God struck them dead they knew better it reminds us of Cain's attempt to gain God's blessing by bringing an improper offering to God and God would not have it approaching Yahweh required sacrifice sin must be paid by death the shedding of blood is the evidence of that death all human beings descending from Adam The scripture says, none are righteous, not even one. We're tainted by sin. We are bent toward rebellion. And that means we must face the judgment of God. But God, in His wisdom, has established a way to forgive sin while remaining just and holy. A substitute could be offered, and the guilty could be forgiven. In Leviticus chapter 16 we see this described through the Day of Atonement that the people of Israel observed. It was an elaborate process. One day a year, the priest, the high priest would come. He would bathe in a special way. He would put on special attire. And he would enter into the holy place after he had sacrificed a goat. In fact, there were two goats One was sacrificed for the sins of the people. The blood was sprinkled upon the the, uh, high priest. And then it was sprinkled upon the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. The broken law before the people. The other goat was taken and the sins of the people were confessed to God. And as they were confessed, the sins were imputed to that goat. All the sins of the people were became the burden of that goat. And then the scripture says a fit man would take a rope around the neck of the goat and lead him far out of the camp into the wilderness, far away from everything, barrenness, a desert, not one blade of grass, not one drop of water, and there he was left. There he was left to die under the weight of the sin. And the priest would go in and receive the forgiveness For God's people before him. But the high priest himself was a sinner. And incapable of satisfying God's wrath. You see this foreshadowed what God intended to do. But it was not sufficient. 
Hebrews 9, 11 and 12 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of His creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood He entered the holy place for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And in chapter 10 of Hebrews, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time after time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, that is Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now this text from Hebrews is not telling us that Jesus needed to be perfected. It's not telling us that there was something wanting, something lacking in His character, that He needed to be perfected through this suffering. What the Hebrews writer is telling us is that the way of reconciliation needed to be perfected. That Jesus came to make the way perfect. That which had only been put before the people in types and shadows, telling them what was necessary, Jesus was the one who came to make it perfect. And only He could do that. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. In Christ the true atonement has come. Hebrews 5, 8, and 9 says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. He did perfectly what we could never do. Bring us to God. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath, the word of the covenant which came after the law, appoints a son. That is Jesus made perfect forever. Jesus announced this upon the cross, did He not? As He was dying, He said, It is finished. It is complete. It is perfected. The way to God is established. It was fitting. It was right. It was necessary that Christ condescend to take on flesh to be a man that He might perfect true reconciliation for God, for sinners. He is the author. He is the pioneer, the founder, the captain of our salvation. And such as the incarnation was absolutely necessary. In verses 11 through 18, we see not only is the incarnation so critically important, but there are certain implications associated with the Incarnation. It has produced for us special blessings. We are not only rescued by Christ's Incarnation, we receive other benefits through Christ's uh, Incarnation. First of all, he says that we have gained an elder brother and a new family. The Scripture here says, bringing many sons to glory. What a beautiful way to say it. Not just bringing people, but He brought many sons to glory. Many. Many. They're incalculable. 
I know we live in a world where we think that many people have turned their back on God, and that may be true. But over the years, since the beginning of time, God has been calling out a people, calling out a people that are many, they're multitudes, we can't even begin to imagine that He is populating His future kingdom with. Verse 11 says, He who sanctifies and the sanctified all have one origin. We have one source. We are all of the same family. Verse 13 says, We are the children that God has given Christ. You know, the firstborn usually have a unique status in the family. I'm a firstborn. I'm an eldest son. And I know that this goes with the territory. There's, there's a certain unique status that's attributed to the firstborn by the family. It's not always spoken. It's not always acknowledged. And yet, there are certain things that go along with it. And there are also certain responsibilities that go with it. Even the siblings, the other siblings, will somehow, by nature, almost look to the elder for leadership or direction or thoughts about different things. Though we are all flawed and broken, but Jesus is the best and perfect elder brother, a source of inspiration, a source of help and care. What we human elders can't do, Jesus can and does do. You know, in the Roman culture, the elder son was the sole heir of a family estate. The elder son got it all. That's why they were so uh, important or emphasized that the inheritance, the whole estate, went to the elder son. And so if you were not one of the elder, you were one of the other siblings, you were kind of on the outside looking in. But Jesus has entered into his inheritance as God's firstborn, and through him, in him, we are adopted and made co-heirs. Co-heirs, the scripture says. Romans 8, 17, And if children, heirs, also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We are not His brothers and sisters because we are God's children. We are God's children because we are brothers, His brothers and sisters. We are in Him. Now that will set you free. Ephesians 1.5 says, God predestined us for adoption through Christ, or I would add, in Christ. Scripture says that God has determined that we will be like Jesus. Again, in Christ, we are like Christ. Are we not? He has predestined that we be conformed to the image that is Christ, to be Him, because we are in Him. And the defining family trait is holiness, righteousness. Ephesians 1.4, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Not only have we gained Jesus as an elder brother and become part of God's family, but we have gained liberation from the fear of death. I've reached an age where I spend more time visiting funeral homes and families experiencing death than almost anything else. Death is so profuse among us. It's fact, it's exhaustive, isn't it? Death all around us. Verses 14 through 15 
present to us this five-step reason for being liberated from the fear of death. One, he says we are human since the children share in flesh and blood. In other words, we have a nature that's fallen. We are not angels. Christ became human. He himself likewise also partook of the same. Christ did this that he might die, even though his own people did not understand this. As Brandon alluded to earlier, they expected him to deliver them from political, military, cultural, social oppression. They completely missed the concept of a new creation, of a new birth, of a heavenly people. They were so focused and still so focused on a tangible, temporal status that is this world and a piece of land that they couldn't see what God was really doing. By dying, Christ rendered the devil powerless, he says. Satan temporarily usurped control over this creation, but Jesus' death has set the captives free and defeated the devil forever. Forever. Now, his greatest tool, his greatest weapon is what? Death. We fear death. Why? Because there's a certain element of the unknown there. We know that it's judgment. We know that it's wrath. It represents the wrath of God. And yet, Christ has has breached the citadel of death on our behalf and has defeated it once and for all. We no longer need fear death. In fact, death is no longer our enemy. For the believer in Christ, death is our friend. It sets us free from this temporal status and ushers us in to the presence of God forever. He has delivered us from the fear of death. But it says that we are also inheritors of God's covenant blessings. I know what you're thinking. He gave those covenant blessings to Abraham. There in Genesis chapter 12 and 15 and 17, he promises Abraham to make him a great nation, to make him a nation through which all people will be blessed. Is it really for us too? We're not Abraham's descendants, are we? Let me read to you from Romans chapter 4. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, that is only the Jews, or also for the uncircumcised, for the Gentiles? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Was it not after but before he was circumcised? He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteous, righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression." 
That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. We are, in Christ, we are his descendants. And we have the blessings of the covenant applied to us through Christ. But then finally, he says, we have a faithful and merciful high priest. A faithful and merciful high priest. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. A faithful and merciful high priest. His incarnation, he faced all that you face. He encountered all that you encountered. He's faced the temptation of sin. He's faced the hardship and the difficulty of this broken world, the burdens that come with it, of living in a body of flesh, subject to sickness, subject to all kinds of difficulties, subject to the circumstances of a fallen culture. He faced all these things, and yet he did so without fail. He did so without rebelling once. He did so without ever even thinking of rebelling against the Father but said, my food, my sustenance, my nourishment is to always do that which pleases the Father. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is His flesh, and since we have a a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, a human Savior was necessary. A human Savior was needed. A human priest who could go between us and God, go for us into God, who could lead us into the presence of God. Not just do something for us, but take us into the very presence of God. For this, for this is the reason for the Incarnation. We desperately needed a propitiatory sacrifice and a sympathetic High priest. In Christ we have salvation, a perfect and sufficient Savior. In Christ we have a perfect and sympathizing high priest dwelling in us. He himself understands and knows perfectly all that we face. In him we find great joy and delight. Desiring to honor the Father. As Christ said, I, my food, my sustenance, my desire, my every desire is to do that which is pleasing to the Father. Friends, you believe the gospel, you're in Christ. His desires become your desires. His hopes, 
become your hopes. His promises become your promises. The writer of Hebrews is making an emphatic point here. Angels couldn't do this. Prophets could not do this. Moses, as great as he was, could not do this. What we needed, our hope and delight, is found only in Jesus Christ, the incarnate God who did this for us. He has accomplished His glorious plan to redeem, to renew, to restore, to reconcile. It was fitting, it was necessary that Jesus enter this world to suffer and die, to perfect the way to God for those who are in Him. We celebrate His advent for this reason, for this reason. Not because He's taught us how to give gifts to enjoy beautiful things, or to enjoy the traditions that go with Christmas. Those things are good. There's nothing wrong with them. But that's not the true thing we celebrate. As believers in Christ, we celebrate His advent, His incarnation, because in it we have our hope, we have our peace, and we have our delight in the Father. And Father, we thank You and bless You today for who You are, because of who 